Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, we're going to talk about staying relevant. All right, so if you think about it, if you think of all the change that's going on, the pace of that change, the new technologies, the new apps that cross your desk, the new procedures in your company, sometimes the new regulatory issues, and even all these new books about how do you lead in a different way, including my own, you can't know it all. Keeping up with all of this has never been more critical to your success, and the volume of how much you have to keep up with is amazing, growing by leaps and bounds. So staying relevant is really, really critical. Now, I want to catch, I want to highlight that not every fad is one that you really need to keep track of, but if you miss a key trend, that becomes a problem too. Now, in addition to all of that, we know that companies are seeking employees who are agile. And for the most part, agility is about being able to learn and to change. The question for today is how? What do we know that works? What doesn't work? How do you maximize your limited hours and your ability to learn and get the greatest return on the effort that you put into it? My guest today is Jeff Cobb. Jeff is a co-founder of Tagoras and a co-host of his own weekly podcast called Leading learning a podcast. He's the author of multiple books, including Leading the Learning Revolution. He's an advisor and an entrepreneur in over two decades in helping companies in this global market for lifelong learning and helping them organize their learning business, maximize the reach, the revenue, the impact. Jeff speaks and writes regularly on the future of learning and the transformative power of lifelong learning for individuals and for businesses. So Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Juan. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So am I. So am I. So I have to start at the top. Obviously, I'm in the learning profession, but you've been over two decades, this notion of the lifelong learning. Why do you think that's so important in your view? Hmm. Well, it's a great question to, to be asked because uh, it, it is something that at this point I just take for granted and I tend to assume that you know everybody else takes it for granted that uh, that learning is important and that lifelong learning is important. Um, you know, for me, it's just the the realization early on uh, in my career in my life that that our continuing growth and development uh, as human beings, and and really in, in in all senses, is driven by learning. And of course, you know that extends to organizations and and to entire societies uh, because you know those are entities that are made up. Of human beings, so you know, basically, if we stop learning uh, as individuals, uh, we stop growing and developing. And if you know the, the individuals in those organizations and societies stop learning, then they stop growing and developing as well. So it just seems really you know critical to to making progress, basically. And I, sh- I should probably first though be clear, you know, by what I mean by learning, or maybe what I don't mean by learning, because I'm not strictly speaking about education uh, or training. Um, you know, I, definitely, I definitely view those as a, a subset of learning, um, an approach to learning, and they can be important. But um, 
I talk about learning uh, with a capital L is kind of how I put it. Um, and, and that, you know, I think is a continuous process. It's something that's continually happening, happening just as a result of our everyday experience, whether we're, you know, participating in anything that we would classify as education or training. And I think we can choose to be more or less conscious about that process. Um, you know, and I think that that's incredibly important right now is for all of us to become much more conscious of learning and of the constant opportunities for learning and of how we learn. Okay. We're going to talk about how we learn for sure. I want to spend a good bit of time on that one. There's a lot to say about it. This, um, I talk to a lot of people who are at early career points, let's say in their 30s, early 30s, and they will have developed an expertise and they will know pretty much as much as they're going to know about that expertise. And they've loved that first 10 years of their career because it's just been like taking a sip of water out of a fire hydrant. There's so much to learn. They get every day just pushing their limits. But when your expertise gets to a particular level, there's not that same buzz on learning something new every day. Yes, there's new things, but not so much. And it's at that point that they get bored, quote unquote, with a career and start wondering what's next. I don't see what's next. What you're talking about is this continuous process of learning and growing. It's really what those people are missing. Am I right? Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, I I think uh, in in any field right now, I mean, in the first place, it's, it's almost hard for me to imagine that you can sort of ever tap out what's, what's possible um, for growing in, in your own particular field uh, of expertise. But, you know, even if you are at the top of your game and, and everything you're doing, in order to be able to uh, have an impact with that, you know, to, to situate yourself in a way, whether that's in an organization, a community, uh, whatever your context is, um, to situate yourself in a way that you're going to have uh, impact, there's going to have to be other types of, of learning that goes on. I mean, and I think yeah. you get to this uh, in a lot of your work and, and, in your, and in your book. You know, you have to understand, uh, the, you know, the diverse perspectives of the people you're working with. You have to understand how the, the market that you're working in is evolving, how the, the customer base or the member base that you're serving is evolving. Um, you have to understand, basically, how to make your particular expertise as relevant and as impactful as possible within whatever situation you're in. And that does require um, continuous learning, or even if you have great expertise, you're going to end up getting left behind. Yeah, yeah. We see that one of my uh, clients says that if you're not learning and growing, the rest of the organization is, and you will be left Mm -hmm. behind. So I think that's some of it. So let's dig into this a little bit. I said at the beginning that I feel like companies are, you know, one of the top five, ten characteristics people look for in a talent search is agility. Call it any number of different things. And we could debate what agility is. I said simply it's about learning and changing. But what's your view and how is all this attitude about learning attached to agility? Yeah, I think agility flows from having what I would characterize as a a true learning mindset. And um, and I, I've written before about what I see as disciplines that comprise that, uh, that true learning mindset, but I'll, I'll highlight just one here that I think is, is really fundamental, um, and that's what I call availability. So being truly available to learn. And what I mean by that is, you know, 
we all have biases, whether we recognize them or not. There's certain biases we come with. We all have baggage that we're carrying with us in life. We're all, frankly, uh, arrogant in, in certain ways. Um, you know, particularly those with great expertise, we can be a little too in love with our own expertise, and you know, again, not really see uh, what else is going on around us, uh, or, or not be willing to be open to, to new ways of looking at things. We're all under the sway of you know countless influences. We're all stuck in, in routines, and you know, all of those things make us less available for learning. But I think the person who is available and, you know, who has adopted that component of the, of the true learning mindset is the person who's going to be well prepared to be agile. You know, they're going to recognize, um, you know, their own biases, their own baggage, all of those things I just talked about, and they're going to do their best to, to manage it um, and, and make sure they're being reflective about it. Um, and that's going to give them the mindset they need to, to recognize when they need to be agile, when they need to adapt and learn in order to be able to, you know, fulfill whatever it is uh, that their organization is looking for or whatever growth they're looking for personally. This, um, the concept that you use, availability, that notion of being truly available to learn, and I'm going to pick up one thing in particular you said, this open to new ways of seeing things. When we look at collaboration, for example, or we could look at diversity for that matter, or you could look at... um, innovation, I guess we should come to that in a minute, all of those, you have to be willing to see the world in a different way. Otherwise, you miss the mark. And is that what you mean by availability? I mean, that's, that's a big part of it. Um, you know, because again, th- there's so many ways in which we don't even recognize that, uh, that, we're, that we're not open, that we are potentially um, blind to things. And I think probably the, the core skill of the most effective lifelong learners is that they are able to acknowledge and, and recognize that, you know, I hesitate to characterize it as, as a weakness. I mean, it's, it's just fundamentally being human. That's, that's how we are um, and rec- recognizing that that's, you know, how each of us is as a, as a human being. Um, and by being able to recognize that, being able to step back having a little bit of uh, humility, having a little bit of uh, self-reflection, that's what's going to put you in a position, as, as you were just indicating, to, to, to deal with diversity effectively and, and to turn it into something that really is the asset that it should be, you know, rather than something that feels um, threatening. Um, it enables you to open up your mind to the, the new ideas um, that are potentially going to you know, lead you into the future, lead your organization into the future. Okay. All right. So as you talk about availability, we're talking about an openness to see that your view might not be the only view and then to recognize that you have some bias and baggage and arrogance and a whole bunch of other stuff attached in there, that that's just part of the human condition. But you're also talking about, you know, a willingness to be humble and to self-reflect. Is there more to ability that I get the wrong question? Let me ask this way. Is there more to the learning mindset than just availability? Yeah, I, I view availability as foundational. Um, it's kind of the, the, the starting point that you need. But then, you know, I'll just touch briefly on, on the, the other areas that I see or the other elements that I see as is, is key to that true learning mindset. One is, you know, and this may sound contradictory on a certain level, but I think it's essential is, you know, while you are being available, you still need to have the ability to be skeptical. 
um, and obviously to be able to, to think critically, not be taken in by just you know anything that comes your way. So holding on to uh, an intelligent and an informed skepticism. Uh, so that would be you know a second aspect uh, or a second discipline of the true learning mindset. A third one is um, to to believe, you know, to truly have belief in your own ability to learn. And this goes, this touches on research by people like Carol Dweck around the the idea of the growth mindset, and actually believing that you do have the ability to to change and to achieve what you want to achieve because you are able to learn. So that would be three um, belief. The the fourth one is really shaping your situation. There, there's so much about learning that. Um, relates to context, to, to who you're in contact with, to the type of content that you're consuming on a daily basis or deciding not to consume. Um, there's just a lot of ways you can, you can shape what you're exposed to and what you experience because, again, everything you're experiencing is contributing in one way or another to your learning. And if you're going to be conscious about your learning, you want to shape your situation. So that's four. Uh, a fifth one is what I describe as seeking stress. Um, so, you know, learning doesn't typically happen, uh, particularly deep learning, without some significant effort. Uh, it doesn't happen, and this is getting into, you know, your area here, Wanda, um, without some discomfort, uh, without being willing to take some risk. So, you know, the true learning mindset is, is open to seeking situations that may feel a bit stressful, but it's good stress. It's the type of stress you need to be able to learn and then the, the sixth uh, element or discipline of the true learning mindset for me is in practicing patience. Um, you, know, <laughs> you, you referenced earlier this whole pace of change that we have right now. Uh, and I think particularly for, you know, the real go-getter leaders, people are very ambitious. You know, you want it to happen right away. But uh, I think it was uh, William Butler Yates who, who said that, um, you know, learning is not filling a bucket, basically. It's, it, learning takes time. Um, you have to have the patience to go through the process, uh, you know, to, to, to work with yourself over time, to work with others over time. And uh, if you can combine that patience with uh, those other disciplines, then, you know, you've really got all of the elements of a true learning mindset. Right. So availability, what we just talked about, is this openness, I guess I'm going to say, and a little bit of vulnerability. And then we have the ability to be skeptical, a belief in your own ability to learn, um, the ability to shape your situation, so focus on what you're choosing to consume or not consume, some stress and some patience. I'm intrigued by this notion of the ability to be skeptical because it strikes me that you could be so skeptical you don't learn anything and you can be so gullible, lacking skepticism that you can't decide what's important or not important. What does that really look like? Can you give an example of how to be appropriately skeptical? Well, it, you know, as you're getting at it, it's definitely a, a balancing act, and um, and it's and it's one that's difficult to to get right all the time. I don't think anybody gets it right uh, all the time, but you know, for example, one thing I've discovered about myself over the past several years is I've become increasingly interested in in health, and I've become increasingly interested in you know, key aspects of health like um, like diet and and like uh, exercise and sleep, sort of the the, the three pillars of good health. Um, and diet is an area that I focus on a lot, not in the sense of dieting to lose weight, but nutrition and, and what, you know, uh, what is potentially contributing to a healthier life, a longer life. Um, and as you know, there's just, there's so much 
hype out there. There's so much information flying around. I mean, anybody, even if you're not particularly interested in this area, you're probably aware of things like, you know, ketogenic diets and, you know, um, paleo diets and, you know, all of those sorts of things that are out there. And that's an area where, you know, I really had to coach and temper myself to, you know, A, want to consume everything I can. Um, I'm definitely very available to learn um, and, and, I'll, and I'll seek out all sorts of different perspectives when it comes to an issue like health. But I also know, you know, just because I've got enough sense of how science works and what it takes, you know, for something to really be evidence-based and, and really be trustworthy, I know that just about everything I have to take with a real grain of salt. And at times I'm willing to treat myself as sort of a, a, an in of one. So I'm willing to, you know, test something on, my, on myself, um, but with appropriate skepticism and, and, and knowing um, that, you know, I may or may not get the outcome I'm looking for. And I want to be careful, obviously, not to do anything dangerous in, in the process since we're talking about food and things that go into your body. So, and there's so, there's so many areas like that in, in modern life now um, where people know they want to seek out information, um, but because of, you know, the great Google monster and everything that's out there, you, you still, you have to apply that lens and, and say, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it in an informed way you know, I, I'm going to bring that aspect of critical thinking, that aspect of uh, scientific thinking to what I'm doing, and that's going to temper my availability for learning. I especially think it's important, especially if you look at all the fake stuff that's on, or I should say false information that is readily available. You have to be a pretty savvy consumer today, and I think that's what you're talking about, ability to be skeptical. I'm going to take a side note on this one, Jeff, because it's a passing interest of mine about rumors. And how it is that you can spot false information, and it's usually in the form of stories. You know, something happened, somebody's child was somewhere, and they were abducted out of, I don't know, some, the dressing room is the one that I remember the most. And these stories are urban legends, and they will resurface and resurface and resurface and resurface. And, you know, if you're not really pretty savvy, you'd think that that was a real story. But it's been a hobby of mine for decades to figure out how do you spot what is a fake story, an untrue story, and what is a true story, okay? Gordon Alpert did a bunch of work on this back in the 1950s for some very good reasons. But there are some interesting hallmarks for it. So my digression here for a moment is to just say when it's a story that shocks you, and it's a personal, like somebody's friend of a friend is who this happened to, you should be cautious. Yeah, and I would add to that to say, I mean, as, as much as I love stories, I mean, I come out of a literary background before I became an entrepreneur and got involved in everything I'm involved in right now. I love stories. I love storytelling. But I'm skeptical of stories in general from just about any source because stories just very often are not an accurate carrier of facts. And sometimes it doesn't matter. You know, sometimes we're just we're letting ourselves be entertained or there's just no consequences to the story. But in general, if a story is how information is presented to me, I'm going to want to go deeper than the story if it, if it really yeah. is something that matters yeah. at some level. Yeah, and fair enough. Stories don't carry facts or information. They're the worst possible. What they do carry emotions, and we get hooked by the emotions. And that is another right. version of a way to be skeptical of saying, am I reacting to this because of just the emotional content, or is there really substantive stuff there? Okay, so availability, the ability to be skeptical, belief in your own ability to learn. Do you have any advice there on that one? 
Mm, you know, I think with that one, just awareness of it uh, is so powerful. And, and even Carol Dweck's uh, research suggests this, that if you, you know, if you give people information about, you know, what it means to have a growth mindset versus having a fixed mindset, and I'm, I'm focusing in specifically on her, I think belief can go broader than that. But, um, just, but just being aware that in many ways, um, in many parts of our lives, and this can apply even for people with, you know, great expertise, you know, outside of their expertise area, they may have a fixed mindset. So they don't believe that, for, for example, if they're great at math, they may believe that there's no way they could, you know, learn a, a foreign language. Um, and they're limiting themselves uh, w- with that belief. So just being aware that this is even a thing in the first place um, makes a huge difference. And, uh, and, I, and I'm encouraged. I think that uh, I think Dweck's research has kind of infiltrated the, the, the elementary school systems to a certain extent. So I'm you know, hopeful that uh, the kids are learning about this growing up and, and, uh, and you know, have this idea coming into to adulthood that if they are willing to adopt that, that learning mindset, that growth mindset, it's not that the sky is the limit, but that, uh, but that you often are going to be able to do things you never thought you could do. Okay, fair enough. All right, the last one I want to focus on is this notion of shaping your situation, that there's a context, mm-hmm. there's content mm-hmm. of what you're exposed to. And this has been appearing, at least in my world lately, in two different forms. One is from a diversity perspective and one is from a millennial perspective. From either of those, just stopping to notice who it is that you interact with, who's on your LinkedIn profile, um, what books are you reading, who are the main characters of those books, who are the writers of those books, what perspectives are you not getting from a diversity point of view? And then from a millennial point of view, what is it the millennials are reading, thinking about learning where and how, and how do you tap into those sources? So I think about that in terms of being conscious of the context um, of what you're exposed to. Do you have any other advice? Well, I think that you know, there are situations in which you, you do want to try to control your context more. In fact, I was having an interesting discussion about this over lunch where the, this group of people um, want to get together, sort of an exclusive group. Uh, this happens to be around you know, reviewing a manuscript, um, and, and each of them would have a manuscript to review, but they're, they're part of a, a larger group where some people might feel left out um, as a part of that. But in that situation, you know, for, for what those people are really trying to achieve, what their learning goals are, what needs to happen, they need that exclusive group. They need to control that context uh, tightly. They need to control the content that's going to be within um, that context. So, you know, there, there are times when that's legitimate and that's good. Obviously, there are other times where we, we do not want to be exclusive. We need to be as open uh, as possible and as accepting as possible and, and, and as inclusive as possible. And I think shape, part of shaping your situation is developing good judgment about, you know, when and how much control to exercise over your situation as opposed to opening up to the situation you're in and figuring out how you you learn and adapt as well as possible in that situation where you may have less control. Yeah. So being thoughtful about it is what you're saying, not just go with whatever's in front of you. Stopping to ask the question, do I need to broaden or do I need to close down at this moment in time? Right. Um, how do I want to control what I'm exposed to? Okay. I want to shift gears a little bit, Jeff, because in my world, we're spending a lot of time talking about the power of self-reflection. And in some ways, you've been talking about self-reflection and your six items for how to have a great lifelong learning mindset. 
um, at least each of those has a point of reflection. So what's your take? I, I kind of think if people don't stop and look at what's in their head, their assumptions about how they lead and why they lead the way they do, are not optimizing for the context. But what's your view about all of this stuff on self-reflection? I, I personally think it's extremely powerful. I've, I've started making it you know, more of my life over time. It's interesting, just in the last week, too, on our podcast, we've started um, adding in reflection questions for listeners to take away, either to use on their own or with a group. And that's something we've been doing in our webinar and our you know, workshop settings for a, a long time. But um, I, I just think reflection in general is one of the most underappreciated and uh, undervalued habits and probably one of the most underutilized habits that we just all really need to develop. And it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the, the need for being conscious in how we approach uh, our learning. So, you know, when you're reflecting, you've got a greater ability to see connections um, between the experiences you're, you're having and, you know, what you already know, the other parts of your life. I'd say that uh, reflection, too, you know, at least if you're being honest about it, is going to give you a certain amount of um, that humility that uh, we were talking about earlier. So, you know, very, very powerful. I think one thing that uh, probably uh, stops reflection from being as widely adopted as it could be is it, um, it tends to require silence. Um, or or you know, <laughs> even if you're in a room with other people, it tends to require sort of, you know, a, an amount of mental solitude. And I think as a society, at least in the United States, we're just we're not terribly comfortable um, with that. But, uh, but to seize a little bit of that silence, a little bit of that solitude, and, and to take the time to reflect, there's, there's probably nothing you can do that's going to help you learn more effectively from your experiences other than continued practice um, uh, than reflection. Yeah. <laughs> It's not just silence and solitude. It's stopping the busy action. I think there's just sort of this this yeah. belief, fundamental belief, that if I'm not crazy busy, then I'm not being productive. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, definitely. That's a good one. Okay, so well, one last question, then we're going to take a break, which is how do you see this whole notion of lifelong learning in its application to creativity and innovation? I, I think it's essential. Um, you know, I think when you when you come up with new ideas, when you solve a problem, when you're creating a new solution, if you reflect, as we were just talking about, it's almost always because you or your organization has gone through some sort of process of learning, whether consciously or unconsciously. You know, learning again, at least as I see it, it's not about sitting in a classroom or taking training. I mean, that can be a part of it, and that that can help to, to spur innovation and creativity, but, but mainly learning is, again, about opening yourself up to those new ideas, to those new experiences, and to being committed to then, you know, processing the ideas and the experiences, to, to seek meaning, to seek sense, and that's, that's really the wellspring of, of creativity and innovation as I see it. Committed to the process of seeking perspective, seeking um, interesting that's an interesting phrase there. Okay, Jeff, in the spirit of self-reflection, one minute before we take a break here, do you have any questions you'd have people reflect on in terms of their own lifelong learning mindset? Well, you know, I started with that idea of um, this is a time when we really need to be conscious, and I think we need to be conscious because things are changing fast. Um, you know, 
some people's jobs are even you know threatened by the the, the pace of, of change uh, that we're experiencing. So starting with asking yourself, am I being conscious about learning on a daily basis? Which means, you know, am, am I recognizing the learning experiences that are going on all around me? Am I choosing to engage with them in a way that's, uh, that's helping to, to lead uh, to learning? And, you know, starting with consciousness, um, and then from there, you know, you start to have a realization of what your own availability is um, and, and the other aspects of the, the true learning mindset that uh, we discussed. Great. Fabulous. All right. So we're going to take a break at this point. And when we I'll finish this part, when we come back from the break, I want to talk about what we now know works for adult learning. So how do we all learn best and maximize my time, our time? My guest today is Jeff Cobb. He's the co-founder of Tagoras. He's the co-host of a weekly podcast called Leading Learning Podcast and the author of multiple books such as Leading the Learning Revolution. And we'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. With co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass, Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Jeff Cobb, co-founder of Tagoras, co-host of the weekly Leading Learning podcast and the author of multiple books like Leading the Learning Revolution. As I reflect on that last segment, you know, clearly I am somebody who's devoted to learning. I, that's what I do as a profession and it's what I enjoy myself. 
But it strikes me that there are just two core concepts in what you were talking about, Jeff, that just ring true for me in a bigger way. And one of those is this notion of availability, that I understand something about my biases and I'm willing to hear a different perspective. And the second one that just really resonates with me is this notion of consciousness of what I'm consuming and what I'm experiencing. And the reason those sit so powerfully with me is when I look at what it takes to do great collaboration or to have a truly inclusive culture or to drive for innovation or to excel managing millennials or pick almost any topic we're currently talking about, those two elements are rock solid in what it takes to succeed. Availability and to learn and consciousness about what you're consuming. So, you know, you could say lifelong learning sounds great, I think that's at the heart of what makes um, what's really important for us as leaders in general. I'm going to say one last thing, too. I think I've said this on many occasions. When I look at very senior level leaders, people who've done phenomenal things with their organizations and whom many people in the organization admire, respect, have a lot of um, uh Admiration is the only word I can come up with at the moment for this person as a leader. One of the hallmarks I see over and over and over again is this constantly willing to seek feedback. I'll take any one new perspective, new idea. I want to try it on and see if it gives me one more edge to do a little bit better with a broader range of people. Not, you know, rock the world, but that constant seeking of another point of view, another point of view, another point of view. So it's right back to your whole point about um, lifelong learning and that learning mindset. So on that reflection, Jeff, I want to talk now about what we know works. So you've spent more than two decades on this notion of how adults learn, what's good, what's not good. So give us some advice. In your personal experience, what has the best impact and the best retention for senior level executives? Sure, and I'll preface it by saying it's, it's been such an exciting time to be involved in, in the learning field, um, you know, kind of broadly speaking, and also in, in education and training, and you've, I'm sure, experienced this as well, Wanda, where, you know, even in just the last decade or so, we've learned so much more about how learning works than, not, than we've really ever known before. Some of that's because we know much more about how the brain works. We have, you know, uh, greater access to, to seeing how the brain works, um, but also there's just been, you know, more more science uh, around learning, you know, studies that help to validate uh, different approaches to learning and, and what is actually going to result in impact and, and retention, um, as you're saying. And, uh, and, of course, the great thing about it, too, is this would apply to executives, but, but we're all human beings, so it really most yeah. of it would apply to, to anybody. It's just the, the context is going to be uh, different in, in, in which uh, uh, yeah. good learning practices are, are, um, are, are provided. And I think, you know, one of the areas I would go to first, and, and this actually precedes, you know, all of, all of the latest science, um, but in, in a way it was anticipating, and I think it's been validated um, by science, is to, to go back to somebody like Malcolm Knowles, who's, you know, for anybody who's not in the learning field, you may not be familiar with that name, but he's kind of regarded as the, the father of andragogy, which is, you know, adult um, learning theory. and. You know, he identified different aspects of what adults uh, really want out of learning, what works in adult learning experiences. You know, and, and one of the areas he really tapped into was 
essentially relevance. Um, so, you know, really, whether you're talking about the, the content of a learning experience, but, you know, probably even more importantly, you know, being able to draw active, actively draw connections um, between whatever's happening in a learning experience, draw connections back to your work, to your life. Um, that's something that, you know, a, a, a skilled teacher or facilitator needs to do, be able to do. It's something a skilled learner needs to be able to do for herself. Um, and also, you know, engaging uh, any other learners who are in a context with you into drawing those connections. Um, so, you know, really being able to, to, to dig deep and establish the, the relevance, the why of any learning situation um, is kind of the starting point. Um, you know, and again, if you're a teacher or an instructor, you need to find that for the students. If you're, if you are the student or the, you know, the, the lifelong learning, learner, somebody who's self-directed, you need to find that for yourself because that that will help you go through um, the process of of what's called elaboration in, in learning theory. Again, that's sort of connecting things to, together, connecting what you're learning to the bigger meaning to other experiences in your life. So I think all effective adult learning, um, all effective executive learning really starts with that, that very strong sense of, of relevance um, and making sure that that's established from the get-go. So we often talk about starting anything that we're doing with a why are we here, but I think you're saying it's much more important than why we're here. We're, we're trying to say how does this thing that we're about to talk about, discuss, read, experience, relate to something that I am currently doing in work or in life and that matters. Yeah, it goes, it goes deeper than the why. I mean, the why is definitely there, or maybe it goes broader than the why might be a, a, a better way to put it. Um, but making those connections between, you know, the content and the experience of the learning, as you said, you know, back into whatever, whatever part of work or life it's going to be relevant um, to elaborating in that way. And, of course, you know, when... When that's happening, um, you're almost certain to be more tapped into a learner's intrinsic as opposed to extrinsic motivation, and that's another thing we know at this point, that intrinsic motivation just matters a whole lot more, so it's not so much, no, am I going to get that raise, am I going to get that promotion, those those things, of course, are important, I'm not saying they're not important, but but the, the, the deep sense of satisfaction that we get from a, accomplishing a goal, um, from, from making the progress that we hope to make in our lives, you know, that's, that's the more intrinsic side. And when you're able to really establish that relevance and, and make those connections, you're much more likely to be tapping into that kind of an intrinsic motivation that, that frankly is going to get the learners to, to make the effort to do, to do the work for themselves. Because when it comes right down to it, you know, Teachers can help to set a context. Teachers can help to provide content. But if the learner, to go back to you know, the previous segment, is not really available, um, is not really committed, is not really willing to, 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 to step up to the learning, the learning is just not going to happen. Um, so relevance is really uh, just uh, so fundamental to that. Right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I'm not going to name any companies here on this one, but I work with a number of companies where there are will be a senior group in that that are highly skeptical to you. Go back to your initial phrase. And there's always anxiety about putting them through any learning event, whether it's self-directed or reading or a classroom-based or just a discussion orientation. There's hesitancy because they are skeptics. But that skepticism is born out of why is this relevant for me and what I'm trying to accomplish in this job? If you can help them get that, you've got their attention. 
It's never right. a problem. But the skepticism about relevance is high, really, really high. Okay, so fair enough. All right, so relevance. We know we have to have relevance. We know that we need intrinsic motivation. What else do we know about what makes for effective learning as adults? Well, we know just simply in the, in the, the practice of learning something, the mechanics of learning um, something that um, this, this may sound uh, um, uh, almost trite in a way, but effort is required. Um, and and I, this, this is particularly a point in, in my world because I deal a lot with, um, you know, trade and professional association conferences, you know, where people show up for a few days, they'll sit in a, a seminar room, a, a breakout room or a keynote, um, and they'll walk away and, I mean, next to no learning has happened. I mean, they, they, they won't retain anything um, within 30 days. And that's because really no effort is being put in. And, and when, I, when I talk about effort, I have in mind things like, what's called effort for, effortful retrieval. So once you have been exposed to something, whether it's knowledge or skill or whatever, you actually have to take the time to, to recall that, um, to go back to it, um, and, and not just to you know, look overnight notes that you've highlighted. That's actually not really very effective at all, but actually to, to make the effort to produce it from memory, whether it's an action or whether it's a, a piece of knowledge, um, you have to make that, uh, that effort at retrieving it. And that's one of the, you know, the, the, the key uh, actions to cementing something in memory. We also know, obviously, that um, practicing um, in ways that do stretch you so that you know, the practice itself is effortful, um, so particularly if it's, uh, if it's a skill um, set, um, we know much more about how to practice uh, effectively now and, and building in that practice and, of course, just building in application, whether it's in learning experiences or in the follow-up um, to learning experiences. And there, you know, there are simple ways to go about doing those sorts of things. I mean, even you know, within the context of a, a classroom-type situation, you know, asking the learners in the classroom to uh, actually explain what they've just learned. There's just been some recent research about uh, how, how effective that is. Um, and that's a form of that kind of effortful retrieval. It's a form of applying um, what you've learned. So, you know, you need the relevance, um, but then you need to apply the effort um, to the relevance uh, as well. So I'd say that's a kind of a second uh, key element. I love that. When people are saying you're trying to remember somebody's name, they say that one of the most important things for remembering names is making sure you actually use the name in the next 30 seconds. And that's exactly what you're talking about, that effortful retrieval. I have to not look over my notes, that's passive, but call it up from memory and try to reconstruct it in my own head. Cool. All right, I cut you off. You're about to say something else. Well, and and I'll say, yeah, thanks for that example, because that's a a very simple illustration of of something that just, it, it applies broadly. I mean, to just about anything in life. I was just, I was doing a keynote recently, and you've probably done this before, where you know, I had to go through, I had to memorize it. Um, and really the only way I was going to do that, it was not by reading over my speech again and again and again, because I was never going to memorize it that way. I had to make myself, you know, recall the passages and, and, and do it time and time again to get to the point where I was fluent with it and it was in my mind. And, um, you know, deep learning typically involves that. And then the, the third point I was going to make that um, uh, kind of relates to that point about effort is, we also know now how important spacing is, and 
the, the point here is that we need to repeat things. Um, so repetition, back when I was teaching Russian many, many years ago, I know there was a, a, a mantra we would use in the, the classroom about repetition being the mother of learning. Well, you know, repetition can just be dull and boring and ineffective, but if you're repeating things in a meaningful way over time, in a way that challenges you, in a way that uh, makes you uh, continue to repeat the things that you don't have yet, maybe repeat less the, the things that you have mastered, but that, that, that spacing of learning over time is incredibly important. And that's, that's very important to realize in the context of you know, traditional education and training, or for that matter, you know, conferences and events, because it tells you that as valuable as those experiences can be, if you don't then have spaced out continued exposure, repetition, and practice over time after those events, you're going to hit that forgetting curve. Um, and a lot of that learning is not going to actually take. So recognizing that you, know, you need the relevant context, you need the effort, but then you need the spacing over time. Yeah. I remember some old studies on this one where, you know, a, the, intentionally stretching it out over days and weeks had enormous impact on retention versus trying to cram it all in. So I guess if you're studying for exams, don't cram is, a, is the answer to that one. But more importantly for adults yeah, one, yeah. in organizations, we're not just looking at gathering a bunch of facts. We're actually looking for things that make a difference in the impact of the business. All right. Mm-hmm. Is there an ideal spacing? Like, is there a time... You know, somebody does something, they have an insight, they have a new perspective, they need to revisit it. They need to have the effort to actively recall it. Is there a time frame over which we've now going to lose it if we don't practice again? Well, it's interesting. There, there, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of different perspectives on that, it, it, and it kind of matters, you know, what it is. Um, certainly, you want some, some near-term um, retrieval or practice because we know that, you know, um, even within the course of a few days uh, after exposure to some sort of learning experience, we're going to start forgetting. We're going to forget substantially. Um, so certainly, you know, within uh, a few days, a week of any significant um, learning experience, you, you want to have some sort of um, spaced practice or, or, or retrieval going on. And then it just depends on, you know, how complex the, the material is, um, uh, you know, and, and, and and how, how hard it's going to be able to it's going to be to retain it uh, over time. Now there is there is also some evidence that um, it can actually be good to take a longer break at times because that's going to force a more effortful retrieval down the line. So let's say you know you went to a class, you learned some great things, maybe you had a little bit of follow up over the, the next two to three weeks, and then you have a break uh, of three months, and then at the end of that three months, you're forced to go back and maybe do some sort of application or, or take a test. Uh, because you have to do that to the extent that you are successful in, in, in retrieving what you've learned and, and, and applying it or, or performing on the test, you're then going to be um, that much more likely to retain it going forward because that was, that was really effortful retrieval. You had it in there, but you had to work hard to get it out um, after that delayed period of time. So all that's to say there's, there's some, some latitude in kind of how you approach that and, and you have to um, in most contexts, experiment a bit to figure out what's going to work best um, for a particular type of learning. Okay, fabulous. So this would say that for me, as an adult working in an organization, I've attended whatever or read whatever or, I don't know, I, there's something that I've learned. 
First is I have to ask myself the question and find the answer for myself, even if it isn't provided by the facilitator. Why, how is this connected to the work that I am doing already and being able to articulate that, even if it isn't given to you? So that's one. Then two is to make sure that I retrieve that information at a later point in time, not very far down the line, and I put in a bunch of effort to try to retrieve it. So things like go and tell a friend what it was I learned, or two days after the seminar, write down what it was I learned. Just retrieve it from memory, not to go back and look over the notes alone. And then the third thing is to put some space in there, meaning to come back to it at a later point in time and make the effort again to retrieve or to practice. So it's just not a one and done. I'm sort of reflecting on it. Sounds to me like anybody could do that regardless how the Uh, learning event is set up and they would improve the impact for themselves so you started with this about giving keynote talks and I know I get awfully frustrated with clients who just want you to come in and do the talk but they want everybody to walk away with lots of insight and experience and practice and practical application it's often hard to do so do lectures and keynotes actually work or not I, they can work, um, certainly, and um, you know, lectures have come in for a lot of criticism, uh, particularly in recent years, but um, I'm, I'm definitely not a, a lecture basher. I, I still think that uh, you know, well-structured lectures can, can really be uh, very valuable, and it's the, it's the well-structured part um, that, that's important to it, and it's also you know, the, the timing of it um, or, or you know, the right time and the right audience for uh, a lecture. You know, so... You know, if you've got a, a group of people who are novices within a particular field of knowledge, um, I mean, sometimes there can be some, some use in just sort of throwing them in the deep end and seeing how they do, but usually it's going to be much more effective to provide them with some sort of, you know, structured knowledge to, to begin with, um, to, you know, to give them a foundation to, to work off of, and, and a lecture is, is still, you know, one of the best ways to do that. Um, and then a lecture can also be very good once you have thrown people in the deep end. Um, and, you know, and these may be, these may, may be experienced people, um, but who are trying something new, you know, and, and, and trying to figure it out, uh, following that experience with a lecture that then helps them to make sense uh, of what they've just experienced. That can be very powerful. So, I mean, there, there are definitely situations where a lecture is not only useful, it's really the best way. Um, to, to help make uh, learning happen. So I think it's important that we, you know, not throw the baby out with the, the bathwater. Um, you often hear now that people don't want lectures anymore. They want, you know, all sorts of group activity going on during keynotes. Um, you know, and, th- and that, that type of thing can work if it's, uh, if it's really, well, relevant <laughs> to the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but so often, you know, if it is a, a well-crafted keynote or well-crafted lecture at the right time with the right people, that's really going to be the best thing. Yeah, and I've certainly seen exercises that are not relevant. So it may have been fun, but that doesn't contribute to learning either. So that's a, those are tight things to try to figure out. Um, oh, I know you've been a part of this sort of distance learning for a lot of years, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And today it seems in all of my clients that we have a lot of knowledge that's readily available at the fingertips of a desktop that's sort of curated from any number of sources and there for you when you want to review, learn, whatever. 
Do those formats work? Or maybe I should ask instead, what makes those formats effective? So the online learning. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they can be effective. Um, and, and really, I mean, there's a lot of research out there suggesting that it's not so much the, the medium that matters, it's, it's the methods. And by methods, I mean, you know, incorporating things like what we talked about uh, around effortful retrieval, uh, you know, practice opportunities, spacing uh, of the learning. You know, that can happen whether it's in a, a place-based situation or whether it's online. If you've got those kinds of elements there, you're going to be able to support uh, learning. Um, I mean, you mentioned personalization. You know, one thing that worries me a little bit there is, you know, whether it's through algorithms or whatever the, the method is, you know, in- increasingly presenting a, a highly personalized body of content to a learner, that, that obviously has great upsides to it because you, you want people to get the knowledge that really seems, well, most relevant to their, their current situation. Um, but I do worry that we're going to over-personalize to an extent that, uh, that people stop stop, you know, looking outside of whatever silo they've been put into um, for learning and, and seeing those diverse perspectives. And for me, that's, that's potentially one of the, the dangers of where online learning teams seems to be headed is it's going to be so, so machine-driven, so personalized that it may be very, very efficient, um, but whether it's going to be as effective as we need it to in the end, I think, starts to come into a question. That's an interesting one. Um, we have just created, and I want to make a comment about this when we just created this online learning simulation, particularly for people younger in the organization and particularly geared around younger women, understanding what's coming in the career. And the thing that they like more than anything out of that is this notion that it's, um, you, you thought the answer was immediately obviously as A, and as you sit around and talk about it, you realize, no, there's five different perspectives on what the obvious answer could be. Okay, Jeff, we're almost running out of time. So if you have any last piece of advice for anyone who's deciding if a program or event or a talk is worth their time, what would you have them think about to evaluate the benefits or to get the best out of it? Well, first of all, kudos for them, to them for even thinking about it in the first place. That's the, you know, that's the mark of a self-directed yeah. learner, and we all need to be self-directed learners uh, at this point. We can't necessarily count on you know, the, the, the content um, uh, being brought to us. We have to bring ourselves to the content. And so that, that would be kind of my first bit of advice is if you're considering any sort of uh, event online or off, um, check yourself for how committed you feel to it. You know, are you going to bring yourselves fully to it, do you have the time? Do you have the, the surplus of attention that you need for it? Um, all of these are you know factors that relate to that concept of availability. Are you are you really available um, for this particular learning experience? Because if you're not, um, then either you need to take steps to get there, or this isn't the time for it. And okay. then the other uh, piece of advice I'd give is to to think less about the content and more about the context of whatever the learning experience uh-uh. is, because. You know, you can get content in, in so many ways in so many places these days. It's, it's usually unlikely that any specific learning event is going to have a lockup on a particular, you know, type of content. You want to know, you know, uh, who else is going to be there that's going to make it valuable. Uh, if it involves an instructor, what about that instructor uh, makes it valuable? Um, just in, in general, what is it about experiencing the content in the particular context that you're considering that's going to make it valuable. And if you're, right. you know, if you're fully committed to it and if you see value in the context uh, of the experience, um, obviously <coughs> along with the content um, too, it has to be the right content. But if you feel committed and if it's the right context, 
then you know you've got okay. the, uh, the, the right learning okay. experience. Okay. Jeff, we are completely out of time. My guest today, Jeff Cobb from Tagoras, if you'd like to learn more about it, and his podcast, Leading Learning, a podcast. is a weekly event. I think the two words that I'm left with, Jeff, availability and um, consciousness. What a great thing to think about how we learn. Join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.